We're going to have a ball today. This is Rational Radio coming to you from Johannesburg. Uh, my name is Alec Hogg. Actually, we're from Santon, a uh, part of Johannesburg that, well, has expanded out to the north. But you know all of that. What a show we got for you. Last week, I was in um, Cape Town for the World Economic Forum. And as a consequence of that, we gave um, Rational Radio a break. But we back strong for today, and I hope that you're going to enjoy lots of what's coming up. I'm going to kick off with the big news of the day, and that is the listing of Process on the Amsterdam stock market. Now, Process is a company that's been created out of the unbundling by NASPERS of its European and international assets. Uh, NASPERS remains listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, but Process is now listed in Amsterdam, and it's been a very successful listing. I managed to catch up just a few moments ago with Basil Skordos. He is the financial director of NASPERS, and uh, here's the conversation. A hundred-year-old company, an hour or a day is neither here or there. <laughs> so it's what happens over the next months and years and decades to come so we're excited but we are excited then but uh, uh, no doubt it is a it's a milestone no doubt in in the company's history today how does it actually work the uh, when you have a new listing in amsterdam yeah so well effectively Alec, what we've done is right is we've given our existing shareholders the opportunity to swap out some of their holding um, that they have on the JSC on the Euronext, and that's how we've created the liquidity. So, um, you, and, and it works actually quite similar to the JSC. So now those shares are, are, are registered on, on the Euroclear. Um, shareholders are now making the elections. Uh, remember, we did give some shareholders the opportunity to pick NASPAS if they wanted it, but, um, the feedback coming back, the overwhelming demand is going to be for process in, in terms of the election. So um, we, 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 we will know that outcome by 16 September, which is next Monday. And then from there, um, process now becomes Europe's largest consumer internet company. In fact, three times larger than its closest peer. It becomes the third largest company on the Euronext by market capitalization. And then when you look at liquidity, because some of these companies have 100% of their stock on, on the exchange, we're about the eighth largest um, on, on, on the Euronext in terms of um, volume traded. So um, it started off well this morning. We set a opening price really being nice, really being driven off what NASPAX's closing price was yesterday. So we took the closing price yesterday multiplied by the NASPAS shares, got to the implied market cap, divided that by um, the number of process shares outstanding, and that's how we set the reference price. And then from there, it's moved up um, very quickly. And as a result, the discount at, at the process level has narrowed considerably. But so is the discount at the NASPAS level. Before we started all of this, we were at about a 45% discount to the underlying net asset value, um, 
as of yesterday, we're, we were about 30, a little bit less than 35%. So that's already a, a 10% reduction. And um, today it seems that NASPAS has also opened up well and there's been further narrowing in the discount. So overall, between these two moves, we've probably unlocked something like $20 billion of value for our shareholders. That's extraordinary. Uh, you know, when you, when you put it like that, when you put it into hard numbers, uh, all the hard work that you put into this, all the criticism that's, that came through, I'm sure all the uh, negotiations you had to do with various authorities are worth it. Yeah, and, and I don't think our shareholders were critical of us. I think they were asking us to find the right solution. And it wasn't a simple answer. Like, you know, this is a complex problem. It's actually a unique problem. I don't think it's ever existed. And I, I haven't gone back hundreds of years, but certainly in, in my professional career, I don't think it's this companies ever have to solve this problem where you're 25% of an exchange. And how do you do this in a sensible manner? How do you do it in a way that protects and, and, and um, shareholder value and doesn't result in incremental costs and leakage? So we've worked tirelessly over the last 18 months to come to this, to this approach. And um, it's just great to see that it's delivering something for our shareholders. Is it done? No. Is there going to be more work? Absolutely, I'm sure. Because our ambition is to keep building that market cap and building the valuation and therefore yeah, there's going to be more things that we're going to have to do going forward. So the, the, the discount is now narrowed from 45% to under 35%, presumably, as you say, it was a, a good day today. Yes. But, but in practical terms, what happens on a, on a listing like this? Do you arrive? Is there a uh, – in the old days at the JSE, there was a big fanfare when one had a listing. People were on the floor and they could cheer for you. Obviously, with electronic exchanges, it doesn't work like that. But do they put on a bit of a show? Yeah, um, no, Alec was great. So I, I woke up at 5.30 this morning and I just took a moment to reflect on, you know, the journey we've been on and, um, and, and just reflect on, on the wonderful team and people that, that helped us get to this point. And then you arrive here this morning and you just see the, the brands and the colors all over the exchange and then the, the Euronext have just been fantastic hosts. They, the CEO is there. Their entire executive team was there. Um, their, their head of, of Euronext global um, markets was here. So Anthony was here. He also heads up Euronext Paris. Um, and then what we did is we gave the opportunity for our people in Amsterdam to join us. So they were all here. And we had a, a good breakfast together and, um, and and a couple of moments of reflection. And um, we then walked out onto um the the platform and and Bob gave us a solid gong I must say and it was loud and clear and um, and Euronex knew we were here and yeah and, and and the you know it was full with people you know whether it was our, whether it's business partners our employees Euronex people and there are some people on the floor too and it was, it was great it was a great atmosphere and we also had Nikki here from the JSC and that was wonderful you know the JSC have just been absolutely great over the years with us and um, they're a big part of, of the success we have here so it was wonderful to have her here join us and um, remember we were also inward listed on, on the JSC so um, process is now on, on two exchanges.
It was interesting to see the JSE trading this morning where Nuspass made up about a third of the trading and Process made up about 20% of the trading. So more than half were the two companies, which, which is interesting. Of course, it's the first day of listing and so on, so it might be exaggerated. But there was concerns that the JSC would uh, struggle because of this listing. It might actually go the other way around. They might get a benefit from higher trade. I, 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 I hope that would be the case uh, like over the long term because at the end of the day, right, you know, I think this is the way I look at it. Process now no longer has the structural issue of being too big for its exchange, right? It then also has the advantage of opening up pools of capital that otherwise couldn't invest in a South African company or an emerging market company, right? So by taking those two things away, um, you actually allow the markets to better price the underlying assets. Once the market prices it, you then look at NASPAS and you go, well, hold on. You know, I'm buying the same assets. Why should I pay more for them? There's opportunity on the on the JSC. It's fundamentally the same business. I should step in and buy some NASPAS. And that's, I think that's the sensible thing to do, certainly what I'm doing. Um, um, and, and hopefully that momentum builds. Um, so we have now this, we have this, th- those bigger pools of capital, better pricing the asset, and, and, and we certainly hope that that also reflects on, on, on the JSC and NASPAS and brings more money into South Africa as people go, well, hold on. These are the same great assets that everyone's so excited about at the process level. We can buy them at a good price here too. So why don't we put some money behind that as well? And then certainly, you know, in going on the road shows, people have indicated to us that that's how they're thinking about it. Of course, not everyone, but um, we are seeing that type of thinking develop. And I think it's great, and it's it's great for the JSC. It's great for NASPAS in South Africa. Have you been surprised at the level of publicity that has surrounded this listing? Uh, no, because, you know, it, it it's quite a unique thing, and it was quite a unique problem that we were trying to solve. And we are a big company, and um, so, yeah, um, lots of interest, many stakeholders in involved so um generally those type of circumstances there is a lot of discussion and questions and so no not 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 at all but it is i suppose a little different now to have the ft all over you and the big magazines from from europe and so on and of course dealing with the big names not that you haven't been dealing with the likes of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan but it 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 is interesting to see that on a on a tombstone of um uh, of the announcement here. Basil, just one last thing, though, if you can help us with yeah. it. The Sense announcement this morning about Nuspers's Restricted Stock Plan Trust. Yeah. Uh, what is that all about? 176 million rand transaction. What is it? How do we understand that? Yes. So, um, Alec, historically, um, the way um, the management is incentivized is at two levels. First of all, we get e-commerce share appreciation rights. So that's really everything excluding our listed assets like Tencent and Mailru. And, um, and and we have to create value there. And that accounts for about half Bob's and my compensation. And then the balance is related to NASPAS. And that makes ensures that we take structural action to address things like the discount and so forth. 
And historically, the way we've got exposure to NASPAS is through options. Um, but the feedback from shareholders has been, yes, options are nice, and yes, it's clear that you only make value if you create upside, but um, the move seems to be moving to, 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 to um, these, these um, performance share units. So what effectively happens now is we don't, uh, we get actual stock, we only get it in three years' time, and we only get it if we actually outperform and, and a, a peer set of internet companies. So um, uh, it, it actually fundamentally aims to ensure that we continue to create value by outperforming a, a list of, of meaningful peers, um, including the likes of Facebook, Google, Amazon. And um, if we do that well and on a continuous basis, we, we get rewarded. If not, then then we don't. Thanks for, for articulating that. Uh, just uh, Sorry, there was one last question. Capital gains uh, that are now being set, how does that work? Because a lot of South African shareholders will be looking at their process, which they've sold their NASPERS yes. to get the process and so on. Uh, what is the number going to be? So essentially, if you take process shares as a South African retail investor, not an instant, as, as a South African retail or corporate investor, but this doesn't apply to institutional investors, you will pay capital gains on the full value of the process shares um, based on, on, on the closing today. Now, that's going to be more than paid off for by the, the value gain so far. And I think the last thing to, to bear in mind is it's not an extra tax, right? It's just a timing because um, you would have paid capital gains tax eventually when you sell your NASPAS shares. So it just brings things forward a little bit. But um, I think you, you're more than well funded on, on that payment as a result of, of how process is part of that. And as a result, I think most shareholders are going to take process. But it's not unique to South Africans. Um, several other jurisdictions will face a similar type of tax. So the tax man is sitting there saying, go process share price because the higher it closes today, the more capital gains will go into the Treasury. Exactly, <laughs> Basil. Thanks for the for the chat. You um, you leaving Amsterdam now? Are you are you um, coming back to South Africa, or is there roadshows? We, we we've got no. We did the roadshows. We've got a global summit in San Francisco, and it's going to be a wonderful one this year, right? With lots to to reflect on and be happy about. Basil Scordos is the financial director of NASPAS. Isn't it nice to see a South African firm going into the international arena and really cracking it big time? The process share at the moment trading at 1,202 rand a share. Uh, that's what your capital gains is going to be if you are a shareholder of NASPAS and that, if that's the way it stays. Corky Koyman joins us. Now, Corky, do you own any NASPERS shares? Um, I, I own, yes. I own myself and I own in, we at Denka own in, in the funds. Of course, let me just uh, mention that some people might be thinking that you are still with Sunlum, but Denka has been going now, your new company has been going, well, some years already now, Corky. Yeah, just, just over three years. And look, Sunlum own 49%, so we, we, we're part of the group and we still get support from them and obviously we've outsourced a lot of uh, functions to them 
But uh, you're quite right in terms of when it comes to stock selection and research, we are totally independent. And it has been a very good listing on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange today for NASPAS, as we heard from Basil Skordos before. But, Koki, I, I wanted to talk to you. I know you've been traveling all over the world, but I wanted to pick up with you on what's going on with Discovery. And the reason yes. for this is that there was a, a report um, from a quarry which pointed to some big hole in their liabilities. Discovery couldn't respond because of the closed period that it was in, but then it came it came out with the financial results, and that should have given us more of an insight, or presumably, into what exactly is going on there. Have you got some insight for us? Well, firstly, let me just uh, yeah, I, I don't cover it actively myself, and our our analyst that does cover uh, Discovery, Barry, Barry de Kock, is in the U.S. visiting the U.S. insurers, and, and Jan Mankies here is also on another. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, being thrown under the bus here because it is fairly complex, but I'll try and keep it simple in that, uh, firstly, just Bear in mind on discovery, uh, we feel, and we don't own any discovery shares, we feel that the share is fairly expensive because of, we think, unjustified expectations about quite a few things, and, and more specifically the offshore growth in Ping An, you know, the, the Chinese business, which is still very, very small. And I think a lot of people are worried that, or investors have been worried that they might lose out on discovery. You know, this could be another NASPAS 10 cent story. Um, but Ping An is going to take years to really become profitable. And like NASPAS, or unlike NASPAS, I must say the rest of the operations were initially never that good. Discovery has really delivered on what it has done on the health side, etc. Okay, so to come to the problem where we are now is the the, the argument about uh, the current valuation of the South African uh, business is centers around uh, assumptions, accounting and actuarial assumptions they make when it comes to the business they write. So just think of it simply in that if I write a new life policy, then there are all kinds of assumptions that go into how profitable that business will be. And and where life has changed over the last 10, 15 years, and increasingly your regulators and and the accountants have increasingly forced banks and insurers for all businesses to account for future profitability now. So, so you get you know, a more even, even flow. But this has led to a lot of distortions. Okay. So I write a life business. I write, write a life policy. I expect that policy to, let's say, last for 20 years. So now I must calculate the profit I'm going to make as an insurer on that policy and actually discount it back to today's value and show that profit now. But in that that calculation, a lot of assumptions about interest rates, about lapse rate, whether the policy maybe gets what percentage of policies like that get calculated or get cancelled or whether the person lives longer, the maturity uh, or the life expectancy. So, in essence, it seems, and this is really what Macquarie are writing, is that um, that Discovery have been aggressive 
on many of the assumptions they have made. And they base the statement comparing discoveries assumptions relative to uh, the other insurers in South Africa. And then a second point they make is they also look at the other insurers who generally have always reported what we call positive variances. And I'll explain that now versus discovery have had negative variances. So the variances are what you report annually in terms of your assumptions that you had made in the past and whether those assumptions are still holding true. And so generally when you've been too conservative, as like a company like Sunlam has actually been, every year there is a positive variance where the outcome was better than you expected. Discovery of marginally had negative variances. So those two together have made Macquarie worried that maybe the actuarial uh, valuation uh, that discovery report is overstated. And I hope Alec gets just about as simple as I can keep it. We can get a lot more complex. No, please don't. <laughs> but that, that, that's good stuff. I think the, the essence is that if a analyst at a, uh, a stockbroking firm like Macquarie, big yes. international firm, yes. is to go out on a limb against a very popular stock like this, they better have done their homework. And yep. that clearly... Uh, from what you've told us now, seems to be the case. But the market, the stock market, after knocking the shares back to, well, below 100 rand a share, has yes. has lifted them in the last few weeks to now 125 rand a share right now. So did Discovery allay these fears in the financial results? To an extent, yes. I, I, I think um, there have been concerns, and, and these concerns that Macquarie um, or Marzi Macquarie now uh, reported on have been around for a long time. The, 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 the analysts like, like Francho Latour have, have been raising this for a long time. Uh, he's now with, with, with City. Um, so you know, your more informed investors have been very aware of, of uh, the potential misstatements. And, and look, obviously every time we ourselves, when we go to management of discovery, we, we challenge them as well. And, and they've got good answers. So it's not as if you know, this is a dark hole, but it's a difference of opinion. But I think in the recent results, because of these write-ups that were coming, the market maybe was expecting that the negative variances could be quite big and there might be a big write-off. So there was quite a fear suddenly, oh, these results could be very bad and the expectations about a bad results were maybe overblown and the results and uh, were better than expected in that sense. And hence you had a relief rally post the uh, post, uh, release of the results. Okay, that's what we call it, a relief rally, because there's still so many moving parts. Well, that's my terminology. If, <laughs> you know, if, if I'm wrong, then it's a real rally. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, there, there are many moving parts in Discovery, and yes. uh, we'll, we'll yeah. get to see it. If you, if you are invested, you've got to take, uh, you've got to trust management, and I suppose uh, believe that although they might be more aggressive with their accounting, and please help me if, if I'm misinterpreting this, um, yes. that even though they might be a little more aggressive than the others, they got good uh, growth prospects elsewhere, and that's really what you're betting on. Absolutely. So well, you're totally right. A lot of investors have seen this as a capitec and as a NASPERS and saying, yeah, and, and look, 
Discovery has been an amazing company in terms of what they've achieved and what they've delivered and their ability to think outside the box. Again, now with, with the banking operations, you know, what, what they are trying to deliver. And it looks like it's always these things take longer and more expensive than you think, but the product is good. So they've always delivered good product and the market is paying up for that because, you know, companies like these, like a Capitec, a Discovery or Nuspers, are extremely rare, so the market tends to pay up for it. In the short term, I think more, and that's what made us sell out a few years ago, is when the economy went into a recession or into a very slow growth, that is when your risk of aggressive assumptions is the highest. As long as the economy grows and, and, and the offshore operations grow according to plan, then, you know, your aggressive assumptions, if they were aggressive, and, and I'm could be wrong there, but um, yeah, the risk is low. But as soon as your econ- economy deteriorates, then the risk of those uh, aggressive assumptions leading to negative variances is, is big. And I think that's why also when that report came through, it first sold off. Mm. Interesting to see that if you had believed the discovery story, you could have got the shares at a five-year low just a couple of weeks yes. ago. Uh, we, yes. we now know that South African investors are getting a better feel for international investing and particularly banks, which seem to be uh, everybody, everybody's uh, top list of the, the cheapest value shares around, although we do know that value investors have, have had a rough time of it lately. Koki, you travel all over the place. Last time I tried to get hold of you, you were in Japan. Are you yeah. are you spotting some green shoots of uh, of re-rating uh, prospects for banks globally? Uh, Alec, I went to Japan to <laughs> to try and find some green shoots there, uh, and and more also to try and learn what happened in Japan as to how they they call off the Japanification of Europe, <laughs> as to you know, how European banks will handle, you know, negative interest rates. And look, Japan, we didn't, I mean, there it's more culture. Uh, it's very difficult for guys to, um, to really get the cost to income ratios. Now, just as an example, the largest bank in Japan, uh, SMG has got a cost to income ratio of 68%. And, um, here in South Africa, Alan Pullinger first ran is trying to bring his cost to income ratio down under very, very difficult circumstances to 49. Wow. And, you know, uh, so when you ask SMFG, what are you doing? And they say, no, our target is still 68 and maybe over a few years. But to answer the question, uh, the banking sector and insurance globally has been derated significantly, uh, even in the U.S., although U.S. have actually uh, says like Citigroup, Wells Fargo were derated on specific issues. Wells, as you know, the mis-selling. Um, but generally, they are cheap companies to, you know, uh, the other sectors. So momentum growth strategies have really worked for a lot of investors. If we look at Europe, yes, Europe uh, is incredibly cheap. The average dividend yield now of of the banks and insurers we hold in our global financial fund is about 6%. We've we've just been buying Swedbank, uh, as it's the largest bank in Sweden with Svenska and, and SEB, but uh, on a dividend yield of 6.7%. A dividend yield. So that means that you're going to be getting back. You buy today, you'll get it back as a, as a cash dividend in, quite uh, correct. in, in yeah. the next year. How does it compare just briefly with South Africa? 
Well, South Africa, the dividend yields, because the market uh, has has uh, been selling the banks down, the, the, the dividend yield here is around uh, four and a half, five and a half. We always take the tax off the divi, so your net your net divi yield is here in South Africa is now about four and a half, five, and there it's six point seven. Now remember the cost of the comparative savings rate that you get here, you can get government bonds at at eight point something percent. Uh, so dividend yields of, of five are not that attractive to that, but in, in, in Europe and in Sweden, you're getting government bonds at, at, well, negative and you're getting dividend yields of six, ABN Amaro as well, six and a half percent, ING six percent. And I don't know if you've noticed the last two day, two days, there's been a, a sudden rally in all these cheap, uh, banking and insurance stocks, uh, because we couldn't understand why the market is missing this, that you get the certainty of 6.5% yields versus a long bond yields of, of, of negative or half percent. And it looks like suddenly the market's waking up to that. Let's see if that is. But yeah, there are, the more interesting ones are your challenger banks, yeah, of which they are, yeah, your, your Capitex in other markets. Um, Metro Bank and, in and London. Do you know much about that? Metro, Metro was one. That was a bit of a disaster. <laughs> Well, you can know, we go back in? <laughs> can we go back can in? Can you go back in? It's it's it. It's a, uh, the problem is always when guys have been too aggressive in their accounting and assumptions. You're always worried. We've got one little one, one savings bank, which we invested in with um, Aldermore, and unfortunately, Aldermore uh, got taken out. Well, fortunately, we got quite a good price from the first round uh, up. But one savings bank is another one of those challenger banks. That also is, is at the lowest valuation, been five years, but that's because of Brexit fears. Everything in the UK, legal in general, Pru, all those good insurance shares. If you look at the valuations, they're down to 10, 20 year lows. And on the ground, uh, it's not great, but they, they're doing well. They're generating a good return on capital. So you know, in that space, uh, in Europe and the UK, uh, they're actually very good opportunities. Koki Koiman is with Denker Capital, as you heard earlier, and he's given us some very good steers on the uh, European markets. We're going to be finding out from David Shapiro in just a moment whether he agrees. And as promised, David Shapiro joins us now. Well, David, we just had a really good chat with Koki Koiman, giving us some pretty nice tips of uh, stocks to buy in Europe. He, he reckons... There are Swedish banks that are yielding six, nearly oh. 7% dividend oh. yields. And then he went on to some UK banks and insurance companies, oh. which he says are at 20 to 30-year lows in rating terms. Oh. Oh. It, it, it's almost like when you look at the JSE, you, um, it, it's hard to spot a winner in a difficult economy. It's almost like maybe we should be educating ourselves about what's going on over there. I, look, I've been doing that for a long time. And the strange thing is that, you know, Cookie's an expert on banks. I mean, this is the area that he's pursued. And, uh, he has a, he has a wonderful name in that and he understands banks. Uh, by and large, we tended to avoid European banks simply because of the trouble that they got into eight to ten years ago and haven't really come out. We've seen the problems with Deutsche. We've seen the UBS issues, uh, SOC gen issues and so on. Um, particularly at a time where interest rates there are negative. It's very hard for uh, you to encourage anybody to borrow. But, I mean, 
Cookie goes and spots out banks probably, as you say, in Scandinavia. We've done very well, strangely, in Allianz, which is not exactly a bank, but is a, uh, a financial services business. And my best in Europe, you know, there's there have been some very, very good businesses there. There's some very good IT businesses. There. The luxury side uh, has surprised us on the upside. So I think, you know, when you, Alec, when you look at those businesses and what the outlook is simply because they supply uh, the global economy, you can find uh, a lot of attractive entry points in that. So don't ignore Europe. You know, uh, people talk it, uh, talk it down, but there's still some very good businesses there. So, yeah, Cookie, I must maybe speak to him about Scandinavian banks and that. But, uh, well, well, listen uh, to the listen to the podcast. I will. You'll get, I will. You'll get all of that. But Dave, uh, it's a big day talking about Europe, yeah, talking about South yeah. Africa for uh, yeah. NASPERS process. Uh, I hope you took your own advice and and had a and uh, enjoying the ride on process. Ah, oh, yeah, and, and how look they're far higher than we thought they would. What attracts me and what's what I find uh, appealing is that it's getting international coverage, and people are taking notice now of this IT company that's coming to Amsterdam. So I think from that point of view, um, I think that the you know the fact that they made this move is going to prove to be a uh, in a positive move, and I would I, look. It's working out the numbers at this stage is very difficult because there's so many moving parts. You know, which how many shares are going to be issued, what the discount to the underlying is, and so on. But I think over time, uh, watch this one. I think it's one of the few attractive uh, points on the JSC. You know, one of the few shares that you can actually participate in this uh, in, a, in the tech boom and. Um, uh, in, and especially being in Europe as well, I think uh, I, I'm very thrilled with what's happened. And the brokers on the JSE will be quite happy to see massive volumes in both of those stocks today, <laughs> <laughs> more than 50% of the trade. So well, they'll, be, they'll be making a little bit of commission on that, no doubt. Yeah, no, there will be. I, yeah, Alec, the trading aspects of the market today are beyond me. I don't understand the derivatives. I don't understand high-frequency trading. Um, it's it, it, this is what drives markets today. I can just look at the underlying business and say, do I like it or don't I? Yes, buy it and that. But uh, those kind of movements that we see you know, on a day-to-day basis in trading, and it's global, just just beyond me. So, I, I spoke to mm-hmm. Basil Skordos, the uh, Group Financial Director of NASPAS earlier this morning, and yes. uh, while he was on his on his way actually to, to, to catch a plane, and he said that taking everything into account, they the discount to the underlying assets uh, has narrowed from 45% before the listing, uh, well, before this this uh, Amsterdam listing idea was announced, to under 35%. He said unlocking uh-huh. $20 billion yes. dollars yeah. in value. These yeah. guys, they deserve their salaries. I know yeah. <laughs> a lot of people yeah. point no, to it. it We're trying much. to work it out, Alec. We try, you see, there's, first of all, remember they had this, uh, they've issued shares. And we don't know at the end what the allocation of shares is going to be between uh, Process and NASPERS, you know, because they've given locals an option to either go with uh, Process or stay with NASPERS. We'll only know that by Monday. So the exact calculations are difficult, but don't worry about being exact. Um, Process is still trading at a little bit of a discount to the underlying, you know, which are the mail.rus and the uh, 10 cents and so on. Uh, so there's a little bit of a discount there. 
But in terms of the other discount, you know, of, of the nice best discount, um, yeah, it could be, I think it's less than 35%. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I think he's, you know, 35% is being very generous. I think it's come down quite a lot. So we, we, by next week, we'll, we'll have a much greater, uh, feel for it. All right. Well, you, you test that 20 billion mm. unvo- unlock mm. of value for us, but uh, mm. wouldn't Sassel give anything for that kind <laughs> of a performance right now? Dave, it just seems to get uh, yeah. from bad to nah, worse. I don't know. We don't know. You know what, you know what happens, and, and one's got to criticize management in this. Uh, the fact that, de- you know, results are being delayed a second time. Yes, they are protecting themselves and they're beginning, they're saying that it's not going to affect uh, any of the guidelines that they've given on, uh, on, on, on profits and also the cost of the, uh, uh Lake Charles project will remain between 12 and 6. 12.6 billion and 12.9 billion, you know, from that point of view, but still the fact that they're in such a mess, um, administratively as well, uh, I think has shattered their confidence. Uh, they, look, probably at these levels, you'll find that it's a reasonable price, but I think the credibility of this business has, has just been shattered. Mm. Well, let's just see the results first. Now it seems to, it's a second postponement, mm. which is almost mm. unprecedented. We have heard yeah. of companies postponing their results for some issues, but to do it twice and, and then to uh, postpone it by six weeks the second time around. Uh, but it just shows you that they, they're not, they have never been on top of this project. Well, I have never been, I'm talking from the day that they've uh, decided to go ahead with it. They've been, you know, it's been out of control. And this is like a Madupi Cassini type situation where you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what you're spending. And uh, at the end, it's going to cause, in terms of what they spent, there's going to be big, big write-downs uh, on on the actual amounts that they spend, which you'll never recover. Why I say that? Yes, you spend 12 billion or whatever it is, but the returns you're going to give uh, will only suggest that the value of, you know, the, the economic value is probably, I don't know, half of that or three quarters of that. The ghost of David Constable lives on. Yes, indeed. Halved in the last year. Wow. Uh, Dave, uh, what about talking about ghosts? What about Aspen? Is that ghost coming back to life? We'll hear soon. I think the results will be out. They seem to be stabilising now. But there again, we have to um, we have to look at the numbers and find out uh, how they're doing, how the actual trading side of it's doing. You know, whenever you've got this kind of debt on top of you, it makes it very difficult to run. And and you can't. Alec, I'll tell you what worries me. And the more you read about it, the more you see governments wanting to crack down on pricing. You know, if you look at the U.S. Senate at the moment, uh, there's three different policies. There's Trump's policy, you've got the Senate policy, and you've got Nancy Pelosi and or the House's policies. But all of them point in one direction. We want drug prices down. We want the cost of health care down. And that's the global message that's being sent down. So for global companies, Margins under pressure, and when you've got big debt against that kind of environment, it's very hard to operate. It's going to take a long time for them to fulfil the kind of promises that they gave us, uh, you know, when they did the deals. No, no offence to management at all. You know, it's been very difficult for them, but they're going to have to work their way through this very slowly. Against that, you know. You, you tend to avoid the share or tend to hold back from 
from buying it. Well, I guess the guys at Sassel are saying, yeah, right, so we've had a rough time. We're down half in the last year, but this one is down from 200, yeah, and, uh, and we call it 300 rand to under 100. And so we had 440. <laughs> we, we were 440 yeah, at one stage. Yeah, but in a year. In a year, they oh, dropped in a year, two-thirds. sorry, yeah. So yeah. Sassel can say, well, we aren't the worst. <laughs> no, no. We're okay, yeah. <laughs> we've had some bad. Yeah. Rather we, we, yeah, Aspen, bad. Aspen. <laughs> Alex, it's been a shocking year for that. I mean, you know, the, the number of companies that have given up massive value this year, it's unprecedented. You know, in a, in a, why I say unprecedented, in a market which has been fairly steady, the number of companies that we've, you know, that have lost ground here is just staggering. Yeah, uh, just stick with mm, NASPERS, eh? Thank heavens. Well, thank goodness for them, mm. yeah. What, what, would, <laughs> what would retirement funds look like without NASPERS? Like, someone I, should do that calculation. Uh, yeah. I, I, you have no idea, you know. Just to give you the idea, you're right. Aspen's down in the last 12 months, 68%. Omnia, 67%. EOH, 62%. And so we go down. And we've got to, close, we've got to close, with, close with another one of those old mutual. Uh, old Mutual yep. a year oh, ago was sitting at 30 bucks a share. It's now 19.20. So it's not quite yeah. as bad. Again, Old Mutual uh, can say, well, we're not as bad as Sassel. And Sassel can say, we're not as bad as Aspen. But, uh, it's, it's pretty ugly. No, I, th- I, I think it's ugly. And I, you know what, what we, <laughs> when you go down to Cape Town, this was Old Mutual and Sunlum. They were the, they were the kings of, of, of Cape Town. You know, everybody worked for Old Mutual or, uh, of Sunlum. And they were almost the aristocracy of that, uh, you know, of that area. That's 170 odd years. And to see what's happened to it now, hell, it's so sad. You know, it really is sad. And we've always held these companies up. In such high esteem, and I, I, that's what hurts me. And maybe it's because I've got some roots planted in this country and been on the market for, for 47 years. But to see how they're just dragging the name down into the dirt is just shocking. Well, what's the latest I, I, on that, Dave? On the Moyo versus Manual? We well, you know what happens. Maybe both sides are to blame, but all I'm saying is that you can't, you can't. Take the name down. You know, you've got to sometimes look at what the legacy of this business and just rebuild it or just keep it going. But I, I find management, you know, both sides of the management have behaved very, very badly. And it's, it's self-interest rather than the interest of all the people who work for Mutual and all the people who, uh, and you know a lot of people that, that work there. You, you know, um, we often did roadshows. We often did uh, for them, sponsored by them, and so on. But I, I just find it a very tragic situation. Strangely, Sunlum have held their own. Sunlum have, you know, just must be watching and saying, "What are they doing?" You know, self self imploding. This is great for us, but you don't want to. You don't want to make. You don't want to gain at their uh, at that kind of exp- at their expense. You know, you want strong institutions down there. We want strong institutions in the country. Indeed, Schadenfreude is never a nice trait. That's David Shapiro, and he is the deputy chairman of Assassin Securities. Well, it's a warm welcome to Michael Bagram, uh, who is the the fireball for today. I guess you could call him because uh, he's going to be giving us some very interesting insights into a story that is that has shaken people in South Africa. It's it's to do with doctors at a academic hospital called Tigerberg. Michael, let's just start at the very beginning. You did, you did represent a couple of the doctors. They, from, from the press reports, 
these doctors who are working at Tigerberg Hospital wanted to improve the look of their doctor's room, and they went off to, uh, to, to the dump outside, picked up an old chair, brought it in to fix it up, and uh, then the problems started. Just, just take us through the story. Yeah, thank you. A little bit like that. Um, it, in fact, was a tea room that they were given for the doctor's use, uh, which wasn't furnished. And they were trying to uh, pretty it up and put some furniture in and get it usable so they'd have a little bit of a break every now and again. Um, it was three doctors, in fact. Uh, I was representing two of them, as Dr. Swartz and Dr. Morgan I was representing. There was Dr. Domingo that was the third um, person involved. Uh, what had happened was um, Dr. Swartz, who is quite a handy man, uh, was fixing up this tea room, smartening up, making it usable. In fact, it was completely unusable. Um, and had noticed that a whole bunch of chairs, uh, looked like a few hundred to me, um, had been chucked outside in a dump um, and had been obviously written off by the hospital. Uh, we found out afterwards that it, in fact, had written off to no value, these chairs. And we've got some really beautiful pictures of a, of a mountain of old chairs with broken wheels and broken legs, etc. And he saw these chairs out there. In fact, it was drizzling on that particular day probably damaging the chairs beyond recognition, and had gone up to one of the individuals outside who um, was known as a Tigerberg Asset Management staff member uh, and asked this fellow whether they could, in fact, take two chairs um, and fix these chairs up and bring them back into the hospital to use in the tea room. Uh, this fellow then gave them verbal permission to remove two chairs, two broken hospital chairs, which had been piled up in the outside court, courtyard. So let, let me understand um, this. There's a whole pile of broken chairs outside, getting wet and, and damaged and whatever. These young, stu young student doctors go outside, have a look at things, think, ah, we, th we could actually bring this inside to our tea room. They ask the permission. The guy says, yeah, Mark, carry on. And, and that's where we are. Yes, that's exactly where we are. In fact, it was it was Dr. Deswart at that point who had, had spotted the chairs out of this mountain. He said he fiddled around and tried to find the two best chairs he could find. Uh, they were damaged, not beyond repair. He thought he could take it home to his garage and add a wheel here and there and, and put a lick of paint and get it uh, up to scratch. Um, he then uh, recruited um, two other doctors. Um, that was Dr. Morgan and Domingo, um, who had a, a motor vehicle, uh, which was a hatchback that could have put the chairs in the back uh, of this motor vehicle. They then helped him carry these tier two broken, wet, um, stinky chairs uh, at no value, carried it through security, and they know, they know Tigerberg's got security cameras everywhere, but they went right through security. Security said to them, uh, where are you taking the chairs? And he explained, are we taking them home to get them fixed? They're from the dump. We're bringing them back in a few days' time uh, for the tea room. They then said, fine. They put the, they reversed the car in the full view of the camera. You can see all of this on camera. Reversed the motor vehicle, put the two chairs in the hatchback and drove off and took it to his garage and started working on them the next day. It was at this point they then heard some sort of 
Skinner, maybe a rumor um, that people are unhappy that they took the two chairs. He thought he doesn't need trouble. He went to his management. He said he took the chairs to fix them to put uh, in the tea room. They said rather put it back. He brought it back, added it back to the dump, and heard nothing again for six months and carried on working. Um, they um, um, are qualified doctors. They were doing a specialty in, in anesthetics. And, in fact, the other two had, I think, already qualified. <coughs> Excuse me. Dr. DeSwart hadn't qualified as yet. He still had a year to go, still has a year to go. And they then get brought to a disciplinary inquiry and being charged for theft of hospital property. Uh, the, the weird thing is, first of all, they didn't steal anything. Sure. That's the first thing. So, second of all, the property had written, been written down to no value. There's a concept in our law, um, in Latin phrase, de minimis non curat lex, which means the law doesn't care about a, a non-entity. Uh, for instance, if someone steals a safety pin from work, mm. uh, or God forbid, a pencil. But who laid the um, charge, Michael? Who? Surely, it, it, well, it lies the on hospital, that. Human resources within the hospital decided to lay the charge. Um, this became sort of a, almost a joke within the hospital staff uh, that they had stolen broken, broken old chairs to bring back. Um, to fix up, which they now couldn't fix up. It was almost like an in-house joke. Mm. And then and they next... wanted to fix it up and, and couldn't even get it fixed. They had to go and throw it in the dump. I think from what I understand now is that the dump is still there. They're now too scared to carry all those chairs away. <laughs> so what happened next? Hello? What happened after that? Well, what happened is they then get a notification to appear at a disciplinary inquiry. They go speak to their management again. So this is ridiculous. <coughs> this happened six months ago. We've been working ever since. Everyone fully aware what took place. I suspect what happened was the union, um, and we well, this is now only a surmise, that the union had complained and said, when our people are caught stealing, they have disciplinary hearings and you fire them. Hmm. Human resources then jumped to the uh, challenge, charged them, went to a disciplinary hearing, and Dr. DeSwart, who was the, the, the ringleader, as it were, it was his idea to take the broken chairs home to fix them up, to bring them back. They then decided, came out with a finding of dismissal. For the other two, they suspended them on no pay for a month and to come back thereafter with a final written warning for the theft of the hospital property. They then launched an appeal. The appeal went wrong, and it was turned down, and they said, no, they're um, confirming the same, the same findings. And that's when they found their way to my office to see what could be done. Now, I said this sounds absolutely ridiculous. First of all, they weren't stealing anything. Second of all, even if they were stealing something, uh, God forbid, it's of no value, so you can't you can't charge someone for theft. Um, and I gave them the example that if someone stapled their kid's um, uh, library card in the office, they're stealing one of the staples. Um, you wouldn't expect to get stolen. You wouldn't expect to get 
disciplinary hearing for stolen property. And I said, and finally, they worked for six months thereafter, so no one seemed to care mm. that this actually happened. So on all accounts, they couldn't be found guilty, but they were. And I said, I'm sure that the uh, provincial government knows nothing about this. And I'm sure that if someone with a little bit of uh, exercise could actually exercise their mind and say this is absolute nonsense, it's rubbish, um, and to reverse it, which is in fact what happened eventually. Uh, the problem is that our law has become an ass, um, that you can actually go through this enormous exercise, embarrassing exercise, go ahead and dismiss people who are actually vital to our system for no reason. So what, what, it's an extraordinary story, and it's one that's been picked up uh, all over the place, social media, etc., for good reason. But is there anything that is any, any, any retribution to those parties who, who clearly uh, decided that they had an axe to grind here against these young doctors? I'm not sure about retribution. Look, as soon as the... Um, or any consequence for their actions. Well, no, there, there doesn't seem to have been any consequence whatsoever. What has happened, of course, is the Provincial Department of Health, who got wind of this, then uh, immediately asked for an investigation into what's going on in the hospital. And that investigation obviously turned up trumps, where it showed that the chair was worth nothing, that they did this so-called theft in midday in front of all security with permission and were in fact wanting to bring the chair back and in fact it is back and they worked for six. So as soon as the provincial head office found this out, they reversed all of this and they said, sorry, this is, we've learned a lot from this exercise. I hope they have learned a lot. There is no consequence. The embarrassing part is that these three doctors who are young doctors vitally needed in South Africa as anesthetists, um, have been extremely embarrassed. Um, obviously, it's a distasteful exercise. They've gone back to work. I know that Dr. Domingo um, called it quits and went to go and work for a private facility. But doctors DeSwart and Morgan have gone back to work there. DeSwart has to because he's got to now qualify as an anesthetist. Uh, but I can imagine this, this exercise has created a really sour taste in his mouth, um, and it's something that we can ill afford in South Africa. And uh, to close our program today, I'm going to take you back to the World Economic Forum, where I was last week. And that was a fascinating uh, exercise in many scales, looking at international politics, big businesses, etc. But one of the most heartwarming stories is coming up for you now. I met a guy called Gary Hopkins. Gary is a, a serial entrepreneur um, uh, who will tell us the story, how he began a company called I Love Coffee and how I Love Coffee has expanded dramatically by only employing deaf people. Well, here he is. Gary Hopkins in the Absa Dome. Gary, you've got a most unusual coffee stand with baristas who are not of the normal type. You were telling me earlier that they're all deaf. That's correct. We're called I Love Coffee. We're a social enterprise. And 85% of our staff are deaf, both as baristas and kitchen staff. Why? Why did you focus on deaf people? Because deafness is the disability that people forget about. And most deaf 
schools don't really teach subjects that help people get a job. So no maths, no science, no history, no geography, no biology, no economics. But so what do they teach? So they teach basic literacy and some life skills, and most of them are taught a trade. So you get a lot of people coming out who are cleaners or maybe upholsterers. So it's it's really very, and it's very difficult for them to, to bridge the, the gap to get into, into the workforce. Also made worse by the fact that sign language isn't recognized as a language. So in hearing schools, no one's taught sign language. So you've got this huge divide between hearing and deaf. So when you start off, you've already got a disadvantage being deaf, and then you get into the system and... No one, no one knows you, no one understands you, no one wants to take a chance, and out you go. How did you learn about this? So I, I lived in Newlands, and um, I, I was very near to deaf, so there, and I, and I went in and one day said, you know, what are the challenges facing the deaf community? And they told me. And it, it seemed to me an obvious solution. I'm one of those weird people that problem solve on the moment. And I thought, everyone wants coffee. So if, if you want coffee bad enough, we'll serve you coffee. And uh, somewhere along the line, you'll learn a bit of sign language. And we'll bridge that gap and we'll create jobs, is what we've done. So how do you actually order a decaf latte rather than a <laughs> double shot espresso? Well, so that's the thing is, you know, first and foremost, we're a coffee shop and we serve coffee. So we didn't want to make it difficult. So if you come into any of our outlets, um, there are numerous ways for you to communicate. So you can point at a menu, you can write it down, you can, there's ways. And we've got little blocks you can use. It's very easy. But if you want to sign, we have instructional videos right next to the to the to the counter, and you'll learn to sign. And, and the latte, I'm going to show you, is the letter L. Imagine I'm holding the letter L, and I'm washing the window. That's that's how simple a latte is, and you've learned that in less than a second. So it's really very easy. You're here at the Absa Dome. You 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 are being exposed to people who perhaps yes. wouldn't see this otherwise. How have they reacted? So positively. I mean, it, it's always interesting. The novelty factor is, is always interesting. But when you see over the course of four or five days where people have been here more than one day, how they've started engaging, it's not just about the coffee. They're asking questions. They're getting involved with the baristas. They, they, they're trying to learn more science. That becomes very positive for us. You know, we, we're all about inclusion. And, you know, um, you look around us. There are other waiters and other companies working around us. And integration is amazing. Everyone has embraced our staff with, with open arms, and it's it's a it's a two-way learning street. Do you pick your staff up straight from school? We we have absolutely no minimum entry requirements. So we get them some some straight from school. Some have been out of school for years, sitting at home. Um, and you know we have success stories. We've had one of our baristas, one of our first baristas, had been sitting at home for six months unemployed. He came and he, he, he was the first one we taught to make coffee. He then became our head trainer and now he's a chef. He's been with us four and a half years. So those are the kind of stories we tell. We, we, we don't discriminate at any level. We'll get you in and we'll get you going. You said a chef. So yeah. you've expanded out of not just Correct. Uh, serving so, coffee. So um, we're actually in, a, in a quite an expansive space at the moment. Is that We have in Cape Town three sites, uh, in Johannesburg two sites. And one of those sites is with WeWork, the, the office sharing space. And they've, they've chosen us as their coffee supplier. So wherever they expand, um, we expand with them as baristas and, and, and supplying coffee, but also food services. So we're setting up central kitchens, which allows us then to expand our training. So in most sites, we have baristas and chefs providing food and coffee. Mm. 
when you say sites, uh, I understand, I get WeWorks, although they yeah. haven't really, I think they've only opened one. One, and they're about so to open far. a second one now in Cape Town next door to us. So we have a, we have a, re, we have a 78 Strand Street, you'll find I Love Coffee there, um, inside Virgin Active Head Office, and inside Harrington, in, on Harrington Street, inside Publicist Machine, which is an ad agency. We're in there as well. Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital in Johannesburg, and then the first WeWork. And you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, for my sins I am. I'm a social entrepreneur. I, I like to make that distinction. You know, anyone can make What money. is the distinction? Yeah. Well, the distinction is that, you know, making money for yourself is, is one thing. Making money that has an impact on someone's well, someone else's well-being is really what we want to do. And we measure our impact purely on the numbers we employ. That's really almost our sole measurement. Though profit is part of it, and all profit simply goes back into the business. So what numbers are involved? So at the moment we have about 23 um, full-time employers. We have about five or six currently trained to come into the organization. But our goal is, is um, by the end of next year to be sitting at 55, 55 people employed um, with a training facility currently employ uh, training another 50. So we want to start hitting triple digits by, by the end of next year. It all comes from walking into DEFSA. Started with a copy. That's simple. That's simple. Yeah. Uh, it's quite a, it's quite an expensive uh, expansion plan that you, you, you're laying out for yourself. Are you anticipating that you can put some of your baristas into other uh, yes. coffee shops? So, 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 what, what we do is, so that's, I'm going to ask that question two ways. One is, we always train our baristas, whether they walked out of us and walked into any other brand, like a leader or Seattle, they will, they will be able to work because we follow exactly the same system of ordering processing a, a, a tool slip and, and working with that, so that's easy. But um, also the thing that's been fantastic for us is that we have, through our relationship with Virgin Active, been selected by the Branson Center of Entrepreneurship as their first sort of showcase um, SME. And they're relaunching themselves and have committed three million rand in three years to helping us grow. So we're on the wing of Richard Branson, which we, we, we're very thrilled about. And how did EPSA find you? Um, through a mutual friend. Um, and to be honest, we, we didn't anticipate the reaction we'd get from APSA. APSA have been phenomenal. They aren't our bank. They will become our bank very shortly because they've been so supportive of what we've done. They have filmed videos for us while we've been here, arranged interviews like this. They've been so supportive and, and we, we couldn't be happier with this. This is the kind of partnership we look to, to grow the organization. Gary, say a hundred baristas, hundred people that you'd have in the organization in a year or so's time, but, but how many deaf people are there in South Africa and how yep. many of them won't ever get a chance to get employed? Well, the, they, it's one again, it's hard to, to judge exactly because figures aren't, aren't really kept that well. Because, for example, in South Africa we don't test deafness at birth, so it's very difficult, it's often picked up late. But they anticipate about 5% about of our population is deaf. So, and between 70 and 80% of all deaf adults are unemployed. Wow, you're talking about millions of people. Is there, when you apply your uh, entrepreneurial mind uh, lying in bed at night thinking about other opportunities, is there any, Absolutely. anything else that comes to you about Absolutely. So, so once we have our training facility in place, you know, we want to look at expanding what we do. So manufacturing is certainly an area we want to go into. We, we, uh, we're looking, actively looking for, for funding for a roastery. Um, that will employ a whole lot of people. And then we're going to start um, manufacturing in our, in our commercial facility, but then in our training facility we want to open up coding for example, so which is perfect for a deaf person to learn and there's a huge demand for coding jobs. Um, and also we, we have sort of a strong entrepreneur um, um, environmental bent, so we, we, 
we hate waste. Plastic and waste are our enemies. And there's a lot that can be done with coffee waste. So everything from making a body scrub through to bricks that become housing to fire logs. Uh, you can grow mushrooms and coffee waste. And that's an area we want to expand. And there's huge opportunity. And that was Gary Hopkins from I Love Coffee. What a wonderful story. He's walking along one day, often walks past the deaf SA or deaf sir officers, decides to go and find out what they're at. He moves in, understands better 70 to 80 percent of deaf people are unemployed because they aren't taught a hell of a lot at school and away he goes. Well, fantastic, fantastic and uh, more strength to his elbow. Well, this has been your Rational Radio for today. Look forward to being back in your company again next week. Until then, cheerio. Love. I would be nothing without you holding me up.